Lifeway Leadership Podcast Network. This is the Unseen Leadership Podcast, where we explore the unseen stories that shaped leaders into who they are today. One of the things I I firmly believe and I've written about before is that self-leadership always precedes team leadership. In other words, if you can't lead yourself, you don't really have the right nor the capacity to lead anybody else. Well, welcome to the Unseen Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Chandler Vinoy, here with my co-host, Mike Kelsey. How you doing, man? I'm doing good, man. I am really excited uh, today to be able to interview somebody I've learned so much from. We have Michael Hyatt uh, on the podcast today. He's an author, blogger, speaker, the former chairman and CEO of Thomas Nelson Publishers, and he's written many books uh, including his latest win at work and succeed at life. But y'all have probably read his blog posts and articles and all kind of stuff. Michael, it is really great to have you on today. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Chandler. Good to be with you guys. I'm honored. Absol- absolutely. Two, two Michaels on the call. One Mike, one Michael. We'll, we'll try to keep it simple with that. <laughs> but Michael, uh, thank you so much for, for joining us on the podcast today. And, and just as Mike said, you, you just came out with a book, Win at Work and Succeed at Life. Can you just tell us a little bit about the book and why you and Megan wrote it? Yeah, well, so I wrote it with my oldest daughter, Megan. I have five daughters. They're all grown. But uh, Megan is my oldest. She's the CEO of Michael Hyatt and Company now. But uh, the reason we wrote it is that because both of us are passionate about building successful organizations for sure but not at the expense of our personal health or our families or our other important priorities. Mm. So if you go back maybe almost 20 years now, um, I just got my dream job. I, I became the publisher of a major book publishing company. Thomas Nelson Publishers at the time had 14 book publishing divisions, and I became the general manager for one of those divisions. And it just so happened that that one division was dead last on every significant metric. It was losing money. It wasn't growing. Employee morale was terrible, all that stuff. So I was brought in to try to turn it around. And so the CEO said, how long is it going to take you to you know, turn this division around? And I said, and I really didn't know, I just pulled a number out of the air. And I said, I think it'll take me about three years. And he said, okay, well, that's kind of what I was thinking. So, you know, have at it. So I went back to the team and I shared kind of a vision of what I thought we could do. And we rolled up our sleeves. We started working hard. We were working 70 to 80 hours a week, you know, working nights and weekends and through vacations and all that stuff. But we did it. And it didn't take us three years. We did it in a year and a half. We went from number 14 to number one, fastest growing company, uh, fastest growing division in the company, the most profitable division in the company, employee morale was off the chart. Okay, this is where it gets interesting. So I got the biggest bonus check that I'd ever gotten in my career. It was more than my annual salary. So I could not wait to get home to share this with my wife, Kayla. I knew she would be ecstatic. So I bounced into the, to the living room and I unfurled this check and I said, look. And she looked at it and she just didn't seem that impressed. Mm. And she said to me, she said, babe, we need to talk. Mm. And I went, uh-oh. <laughs> So we sat down on the sofa and, and she said, she kind of teared up a little bit. And she said, you know, she said, first of all, I appreciate everything you've done for our family. And I, I love you so much. But she said, honestly, you're never home. Mm. And she said, even when you are at home, 
you're not really here. You're somewhere else. Well, I knew that was true. I didn't like it. And I didn't like hearing it from her, but I knew she was, she was probably right. And she said, your five daughters desperately need you at this point in their life. And I knew that was true. And then she kind of started crying and she said, honestly, I feel like a single mom. Mm, that was wow. like a gut kick because I thought I had reached the pinnacle of success. This was the high watermark. But what I realized was that it was a false summit. Yeah, I was winning at work, but I was not succeeding at life. And I, I realized right then and there, I was on the verge of, of losing my family and compromising what were really my most important priorities all on the altar of my ambition. Hmm. Wow. wow. Well, thank you so much for writing the book. And, and it, as you were just sharing right there, and this is what I love, so much of your writing comes out of your experiences. You experience it and then you kind of share it with everyone else. And, and we get to benefit from that. And no, thank you. And, and there's so much to learn there. So let's hop into the questions here because I know we're all excited to, to continue okay. to learn from you today. So the first question is this, and you kind of touched on this a little bit when you're at Thomas Nelson, but can you walk us through a quick overview of the leadership roles that you've been in over the years to lead you to where you are today? Yeah. So, you know, I went, when I, when I finished college, I intended to go to seminary and never made it. Uh, I took a job at a small publishing company in Waco, Texas, word publishing at the time mm -hmm. later acquired by Thomas Nelson, but I became the director of marketing. That was like the first leadership job I ever had. And I didn't have a clue what I was doing. <laughs> and, and so then I, I got promoted from that to another job on the editorial side of the business. And then I ended up moving to Nashville to go to work for Thomas Nelson. And I actually was at Thomas Nelson two different times. So I was there uh, at Thomas Nelson the first time as the VP of marketing. And then after a couple of years, I left along with my boss and we became business partners in a new business venture, a new publishing company that we started. And that business did great for about five years. And then it failed. And it, and it failed for a variety of reasons. One, we didn't have a clear vision about what we were going and we just got overwhelmed by our opportunities. And then the other thing, we just ran out of cash. And mm -hmm. that was a horrible, terrible experience, humiliating experience. But it was really, really good for me, you know, because I think it humbled me and taught me a lot of lessons about leadership that I otherwise would not have learned. So... So then I ended up going back to Thomas Nelson. I worked in that division that I later became the general manager of. And then when I turned that division around, then I started getting more and more responsibilities. So then I, you know, I was over a division, then I was over several divisions, and then I became the COO of the company in 2003. I was made the CEO of the company of Thomas Nelson in 2005. And at that time, we were a publicly held company traded on the New York Stock Exchange, about 750 employees. And so I was in that role for six years before I started, stepped away. We sold the car company to HarperCollins and I used that as an opportunity to exit and start this company, which I'm in today, Michael Hyatt and Company. And we're about to celebrate our 10 year anniversary this next month. Oh, congratulations. That's exciting. Congratulations, man. Yeah, it's crazy hearing you say that at one point you didn't uh, you didn't know what you were doing. It's just very difficult for me to hear Michael Hyatt say there was a point in life where he didn't know what he was doing. <laughs> we all look to you to like know what, what well, to thank do. You. You're just talking <laughs> what I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you, you mentioned that moment uh, with your wife, um, which was a, a pretty pivotal moment, but that was kind of later in life. You had kind of 
been climbing the ladder of success. And uh, but but early in your development as a leader, was there another pivotal moment that you would say kind of early on set trajectory for you or marked your leadership in life? Yeah, I will. You know, one of the things I I firmly believe and I've written about before is that self-leadership always precedes team leadership. In other words, if you can't lead yourself, you don't really have the right nor the capacity to lead anybody else. Mm. So, you know, character is everything. You know, who you are as a person before you ever step into the role of a leader is critically important because like it or not, you're going to replicate yourself, you know, Mm. with your strengths and your weaknesses. (laughs) And so one pivotal moment I had was, um, my boss, when I was the director of marketing at Word Publishing, and the guy that I later became a partner with was a guy named Robert Walgamuth. And um, he and I are, we've been in three different businesses and he and I are still great friends to this day. But one of the things that happened to me early on is I took that job as a marketing director. And he said to me, he said, look, he said, you know, I think you're going to do amazing at this job. He said, there's just one problem. You have neither the education nor the experience to do this job. Wow. <laughs> And I said, well, thanks for the encouragement. But he said, you know, I just have this kind of innate belief in you, but I'm going to put you on kind of a 90 day probationary period. And if you, and if you do a great job in the first 90 days, then I'm going to bump your salary and I'm, you know, we'll make it permanent. But I, I just kind of feel like, you know, in fairness to my company, I got to see how you're going to do in this before I, you know, really make you the permanent marketing director. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm willing to do that. So guys, I, I busted my tail. You know, I was there at five in the morning. I didn't leave till six at night. I worked really hard mm-hmm. and did a great job. So after the 90 days, he called me, I mean, literally day 91, he called me and he said, Hey, can you come to my office? I want to talk to you. So I'm, you know, I'm feeling pretty good about this. You know, I thought, cause so here's the raise that I've been wanting and the permanent, you know, offered all that. And so he said, look, he said, as you know, our company is owned by ABC Cap Cities and ABC Cap Cities has put a salary freeze on our companies, all their portfolio companies and a hiring freeze. So mm-hmm. I know that I promised you a raise, but I can't do it. My hands are tied. The company's just frozen all salaries at this point because of the economy. This would have been back in like 19." 8081. Mm-hmm. So I said, um, wow. I mean, I was really disheartened, you know, disappointed, but, you know, tried to put a positive spin on it. I said, well, you know, I'm going to just going to keep working. And he said, you've done, you've done an amazing job. I mean, he said, you've, you've crushed mm-hmm. it. So I went, uh, I went home, talked to my wife, Gail, told her about it. And she said, well, babe, I just think you just, you know, you just need to keep working and trust God that, you know, he's going to make it right and it's all going to work out. So very next day, Robert calls me on the phone again and he says, Hey, I, I, I want to talk to you again and follow up to our meeting yesterday. And I said, okay. So I went up to his office. I sat down. He had an envelope in his hand and he said, um, he said, I'm going to, I'm about to give you something. And he said, you can't say no to this, mm-hmm. but he said, I've been, I, he said, I talked about to, to my wife, Bobby about this. And he said, I realized that I made this commitment to you to give you this raise. And he said, the company is unwilling or can't make it good, but I want to be a a man of my word and I've got to make it right. And so he handed me a check for $3,000, which was the difference between what I'd been hired at 
and what he had promised me. So he took it out of his <laughs> own pocket. Well, that was my first and still to this day, best lesson on integrity. And Dr. Stephen Covey says that honesty is about making words line up with reality. In other words, you represent things as they are. But integrity is making reality line up with your word. And that's exactly what Robert did. He had given his word to this, and he was willing, even as a, at his own expense, to make it right. And I mean, as a young leader, that had an enormously profound impact on me. Man, I, first of all, we can just close, channel, we can close the podcast right now. Seriously. I mean, that, just that, there is so much in there, obviously about integrity and man, if it, those of you listening, you need to rewind and, and get that definition he just gave. What I'm curious about is for, because we've all had those kind of moments as young leaders where we've gotten that honest feedback. So even before he followed through on his word to you, how did you handle him looking you in the face and being honest and saying, hey, you just don't have it right now? Because a lot of leaders either would be completely demolished by that or in their pride would just be angry and push against it or leave. Like, how did you have the wherewithal to kind of take that and stick around and keep working hard? What effect did it have on you? That's a great question. I don't think I've ever been asked that question. Mm. I, I, I think, first of all, I really liked him. Mm. And I, I loved the idea of working in the publishing industry because I had such a love for books. I was a philosophy major, so I, I was reading constantly and I loved books. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought, man, it doesn't, get, it doesn't get better than being in the book industry and whatever I have to do to get in. And somebody's given me a chance and I knew I was competing against a lot of people and just the fact that, um, that I was being, being given a shot you know, felt honoring to me mm. and felt like that I was, I kind of felt like I was unworthy of it. I was kind of felt like, man, you know, I better make good on this. So he didn't feel like he made a mistake. Mm. And so, you know, one of, this is another funny story too. So the first day on the job, he said, by the way, uh, we need to have an ad to this specific magazine this afternoon, or no, I'm sorry, tomorrow. And he said, I need you to write the advertising copy for the ad and then get it to our agency tomorrow. Well, the problem was I'd never run, I've never written it. <laughs> and so I said, okay. So on my lunch break, I went down to the local bookstore and about like three books on writing advertising copy. And man, I just hunkered down and wow. like almost all night. You know, all I did was read those books and try to get pointers and all that. And then I wrote the ad and I submitted it. And when I submitted it, it was funny because he said, oh yeah, that looks great. What else am I going to be asked to do that? <laughs> like, you sure you don't want to edit that or look it over a little yeah, bit more? Yeah. <laughs> That's great. It's a great story. Well, I want to move just a little bit forward in your story. And when you were talking about at Thomas Nelson, you, you took over the division that was last in all the categories. And when you said that, it just popped into my head that not many people would sign up for that. They would be sitting there. And when you think of your dream job, you're, you're thinking, well, I want to take over the company, uh, the, the division of the company that's killing it. And then I want to just jump in and continue on with that. So stepping into that, what made you um, kind of be able to step into that? And then even as you're trying to take steps, I'd love to kind of get a little bit practical here. Yeah. I mean, you, you, got, you said you went from last to first. I mean, what were the steps that you took 
to be able to, I mean, it's not going to work. It's, this is not the cookie cutter way to take the, the last division to be the first, but it's, Hey, here's, here's was my thought process and here's what worked in this situation. Yeah. So let me just talk about taking this job. First of all, I was already working in that division. And so I kind of knew we were in trouble, but I didn't have anything to compare it with because I didn't, I wasn't privy to the financial statements of other divisions and I didn't know how we ranked and all that stuff. So when I said, yes, I didn't know we were dead. (laughs) (laughs) So that was kind of a surprise to me. It was like, but then, but then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, this is pretty cool because I can't really screw it up. (laughs) (laughs) It's the only upside. I can only improve it. Yeah. So, so the first thing I did and, um, and I, I don't know why I did this, but I just, it just kind of was intuitive to me. I said to my assistant, I said, Hey, I need a, I need a half day to get off by myself and just kind of dream about what I want this division to do, what I want it to become. And so this was, was my first stab at creating what I now call a written vision script. And I've got an entire book on that called The Vision Driven Leader. But uh, but I went out and just as a series of bullets, I said, what do I want to be true of this division in three years? Because remember, I told the CEO that I, you know, I thought we could turn it around in three years. And I, I basically just, all I meant was we could get it growing again and we could make it profitable. Mm-hmm. So I wrote down bulleted things and I wrote them in the present tense as though they'd already happened. So I said things like, or they're already happening. I said things like, um, we're the, we're the most profitable division in the entire company. Hmm. Um, I said, we're the fastest growing division in the entire company. We publish five New York times, bestselling authors a year. Um, our team, we max out our bonuses every year. So there are about 10 of those items. And that was kind of a perfunctory or preliminary prototype for what I now call the vision script. So that gave me clarity about where I wanted to take this division. Now, this is really important for leaders because if you're leading people, you're taking them somewhere. Mm. And if you don't know where you're taking them, you're not really qualified to be a leader. Mm-hmm. Now, I would have never said that back then, but but looking back on it, it's pretty obvious. You know, if I got my family together, I'm looking out of my driveway right now as I'm talking, I said, hey, let's go on a vacation. I said, great, dad, where are we going to go? I don't have, I don't have a clue. I don't know. You know, that wouldn't be a very satisfactory answer because until you determine where you're going to go, nothing else, you know, what you pack, uh, what the route's going to be, you know, none of that makes sense. But here's the thing. Once you have a vision. And so I got this down and I, and I didn't come down like Moses from the mountain, but I went back to my leadership team and I said, Hey guys, I've been thinking about the future. I'm sure there's some things I've, I've missed. This is just wet cement. But I want you to respond to this because I need your help if we're going to get the vision for this thing right. So they got super energized. They'd never done this before. You know, we put together this, what became our vision. Once you have vision, then you can create alignment. And alignment means that everybody's rowing in the same direction. And a lot of organizations, because they don't have a vision, they don't have alignment. And because they Mm -hmm. don't have alignment, there's a lot of sideways energy, a lot of fake work, a lot of really busy people, a lot of overwhelmed people, but they're not making progress. So vision, alignment, and once you have those two things, you can drive execution. Mm. And so once you know where it is you're going, once you're all rowing in the same direction and all working together, not against each other, then you can make faster progress. Clarity of vision 
drives an acceleration of results. And that's exactly what mm. we experienced. Mm. Man, that's a, that's a great breakdown right there. And if you have not read the vision driven leader, you're going to want to check it out. Cause if you're, if you're like taking notes on that, it's all in the book and it's, it's such a great, it is yeah. great book. Well, before we get to the next question, let's take a moment and hear from our sponsor. No matter how many people you have on staff at your church, there's only so much you can accomplish in a day, right? Your church exists to serve your community. So the mission of your church and its staff is to reach as many people as you can. That's why productivity is essential for churches, as most of your church's success lies in its ability to lean into and leverage resources for optimum performance. And thankfully, our friends at Belay know this well. Belay is an innovative staffing solution with over 10 years of experience serving churches, and they have successfully matched thousands of organizations with part-time virtual assistants, bookkeepers, and social media strategists. That's why they're offering our listeners a free download of their resource, Church Leaders, Essential Strategies to Unleash Productivity. Let Belay help your church live its mission in your community by helping you juggle less and accomplish more. Just go to Belay, that's B-E-L-A-Y, solutions.com slash Lifeway for your free download. When you were just getting started, I'm sure there were some mistakes along the way. And of course, those probably led to some of the books that you have written. But what would you say was the biggest or one of the biggest mistakes getting started? Man, there's so many that it's hard to narrow it down. (laughs) Um, I I would say initially, despite what I said about taking that job, you know, that, that, you know, I wasn't arrogant, you know, I think I was fairly humble in taking the job. I I quickly got arrogant Mm. and, and I really offended a lot of people. I didn't, I didn't know it, but I just kind of had this demeanor about me, you know, that I, that I knew more than everybody else, you know, and, and the, the truth was it was all head knowledge You know, everything I knew I'd written a book somewhere. It didn't really come from experience and I hadn't failed enough yet to really kind of get that kind of experience you get from making mistakes. And so I had a lot of, you know, book learning, head knowledge, read a lot of leadership books, a lot of business books, and I was just kind of a know-it-all. And I think that was really off-putting to other people. And it didn't exactly make other people root for me. You know, I think that that one of the things that's critically important for success is likability. Because whether you realize it or not, your success depends upon a lot of the people giving you the green light to continue. And oftentimes those those green light conversations are in meetings where you're not even present. You know, or maybe two people above you or a group of people above you are saying, Hey, we, you know, we got this vacancy and who can we put in there? And they'll talk about you and you're not there to defend yourself or explain or anything. And they either like you or they don't like you. They either for you or they're not for you. And so I think that, that, you know, I made some mistakes there. Thank, thankfully, you know, I, I did make mistakes and got humbled and got less full of myself, but I kind of wished I'd come to that faster. Mm. You know, you can either humble yourself or be humbled, but you're going to get humbled. <laughs> yeah. That's so real. And I think a lot of leaders underestimate that. And even for for those leaders that have responsibility for choosing and selecting and recruiting and developing other leaders, that likability factor, we don't 
we don't think about, I was thinking my, my daughter, uh, when she was young, had one bad experience with a banana. And after that, she was like, I don't like bananas anymore. I don't care. How, I don't care if I give her a banana split. And uh, I feel like it can be like that with leadership where uh, we don't recognize the intangible effect of, of uh, some of our quirks and personalities, our arrogance on people. And like you said, uh, that bears fruit in conversations that we're not even a part of sometimes. So I, I, I love that you, hmm. that you brought, brought that up because that's something huge for us to, to, to think about. Um, what, uh, what book, uh, and you've written a lot of books now, uh, but I know you were probably uh, shaped and influenced by books and your leadership. What book do you wish somebody gave you when you were first starting to lead? Well, I mean, it's, you know, I'd love to point to something like Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which I, I still think is one of my all time favorite books of all time. I wish somebody had given me a book on vision because I really do think that vision is the most fundamental, most foundational thing for everything, whether it's your life or whether it's, you know, your business. And so I, I ended up having to write the book because I couldn't find anything. You know, The Vision Driven Leader is, is that book. I did write another book called Living Forward that I did with Daniel Harkavy, and that's a book about life planning. So I think getting clear about what you want in your own life, what you want for all the different domains of your life, your health, your marriage, your, your kids, your business, your hobbies and all that, you know, that's that book, Living Forward. And then The Vision Driven Leader is the, the book on organizational uh, vision. But yeah, if I had to name somebody else's books, you know, John Maxwell's been hugely helpful to me. Andy Stanley's been hugely helpful to me. Mm. Um, Stephen Covey, Brene Brown, mm. and then those two books I mentioned in mine. Mm. Well, when you're when you're hopping into leadership, and you kind of mentioned this a little bit and touched on this, but what was some of your biggest misconceptions about leadership uh, as a young leader? Yeah, I would say the single biggest one is I thought I had to have all the answers. Mm. And so I, I felt a lot of pressure to be super prepared. Like when I would go into meetings, particularly when I became the CEO of Thomas Nelson, you know, because, you know, I was running a fairly big public company where I had a lot of people looking over my shoulder. So I had to have a quarterly, you know, call with our analysts and institutional investors. You know, most public companies have to do that. And man, I thought I was just, you know, I had to study and work hard and make sure I had all the answers. But what I realized very quickly when I got into that job is that the leadership is not as much about having answers as having the right questions. Mm -hmm. And so if I could ask really good questions, then I could lead the company because my, my fundamental belief now, and when I'm working with our coaching clients now, we have about 700 people in our coaching practice today. Uh, it's called business accelerator, but you know, we, we do teach and we do have content but asking questions is critically important. And so what I tried to do now, I had a coaching appointment with one of my clients this morning and, and I just really tried to ask really good questions because I, I believe at a fundamental level that people have inside of them, you know, wisdom and knowledge that they need to learn to tap into. Hmm. And what I don't want to do is I don't want to create a relationship that's dependent upon me being somehow the answer man or their guru, because that doesn't help them in the grow in their leadership. I want them to learn to dig deep and to think deeply and to analyze so that they can rely, you know, on themselves and frankly, God, not on me. Yeah. Does that make sense? 
Absolutely. It, it does. But don't, if I'm hearing that, doesn't that undermine though your expertise and your authority and uh, the, the credibility that you have to be in that seat that the people around you, if you're the one kind of, if you're the lead question asker, it, it seems kind of counterintuitive. Uh, doesn't that undermine you? Yeah, I don't think so. Um, because you know, what draws people to you is, is how they feel when they leave your presence, mm. you know, and, and, and what's not helpful is if people walk out of a meeting with me and just go, man, he's really smart. I'd much rather have him walk out of the meeting and go, you know, every time I'm with that guy, I feel smarter than at any other time. Right. You know, I feel more confident. I feel more comfortable in my own skin. You know, if I can give people that gift, I, I think that's huge. I think that's way more important than them walking out thinking better thoughts about me. Hmm. That's, that is gold. That is gold. And, and I think even in my own leadership, uh, that, that just people not walking away talking about how smart I am, but feeling that I've affirmed how smart they are, yeah. their gifts. That is just, that's huge. Um, I want to come back to uh, your book. Um, because you, 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 you came out the gate with just, um, <laughs> so, so, so much wisdom just in that one story, uh, you know, about your wife and which kind of sent you on this journey and writing this book. And so the book went at work and succeed at life, uh, coming out in April, you talk about the cult of overwork. And you kind of already illustrated it in your own life, but a lot of young leaders have a lot of aspirations to grow in their career, which then leads them to overwork themselves and create bad yeah. habits of kind of work-life balance. And so what advice then would you give young leaders about freeing themselves from the cult of overwork? Well, I think it's a great question, Mike. I think, first of all, you know, we have to acknowledge that, that we do have a cult of overwork. And it's not just limited to the United States, and you guys probably have listeners all over the world, but it's pretty much the de facto standard all over the world right now because people want to get ahead. And then you have certain celebrity entrepreneurs, people like Elon Musk, and I could name others, and I'm only naming him because he's been very public about this, but he advocates working 100 hours a week. And he says, if you do that, then you can get done in four months what your competition takes 12 months to do, and you can just outwork them. Mm -hmm. So you can beat them by outworking them. The problem is, that the science is not on his side because we know from the science and I, we include the research in the book that once you hit about 50 to 55 hours a week, you've maxed out your productivity. In fact, your productivity actually go, goes backwards once you, you do that. But worse, when you do that, you blow out some other really important things in, in your life, like your health, mm. like, you know, your most important relationships, you know, Elon's on his third marriage, I think now he's got five sons that by his own admission, don't talk to him. You know, that's, that's not what I'm going for. You know, I want to get to the end of my life and have, you know, be married to, to somebody that still loves me and is still excited about being married to me. And thank God I've been married for 42 years today. And my wow. wife, I just, as we we're talking, I walked, saw her drive up and walk into the house. I can't wait to be with her tonight. Mm -hmm. I've got five daughters. I've got nine grandkids. All of them live within 20 minutes of me. And they want to hang with me. You know, we're all going on a vacation here in a couple of weeks. So, you know, I think the thing that, that, that we have to realize and the point we tried to make in this book was something we call the double win, where you can win at work. Yes, kill it at work. Make a dent in the universe. Accomplish big things. 
but don't sacrifice your health or your most important relationships on the altar of your ambition. Mm. And so this book is basically an argument for work-life balance, that life is interconnected. You know, if I'm stressed at work, I'm going to bring that home. It's going to affect my relationship with my, my spouse. Mm-hmm. If, if I've got problems with one of my kids, if they've gone off the rails, if they're involved with drugs or having problems in school or whatever, I'm going to be distracted at work because I'm going to be thinking about them instead of thinking about my work. So this all works better if it's in balance. And that doesn't mean perfectly in balance. And I think there's a lot of a lot of people that think, you know, when, when we talk about work-life balance, that, that that means giving equal time to every category or every domain of life. It doesn't mean that. Mm-hmm. It means giving the appropriate amount of time to every one of these categories. So for example, today, I work a six-hour day, but I worked out for an hour this morning. Okay, so I don't need to work out six hours so that I'm in balance with my work. You know, an appropriate, if I, I can get what I need to get done physically in an hour a day. And that's only five days a week. I'm not even doing that seven days a week. You know, so it, it's the appropriate amount of time for each of these life domains. So that's basically the argument that we're making in the book is that, that life is more than work. And you'll actually achieve more by doing less if you put some constraints around your work and, and, and force yourself not to work all the time. Mm-hmm. And you just led right into the next follow-up question I had on that is young leaders, they're trying to figure out not only what is work for me in my life, how do I balance these things, but also how do I create structure and boundaries between yeah. all the areas of my life? And if we're not careful, we just, I love what you said there is like the, the research shows, you know, 50 to 55 hours. And it's fascinating that we actually, it goes backwards. And I, I was literally just, thought of that. I was like, that is, that seems absolutely true. Like there's so many times where you just try to work and you're like, I'm getting nothing done here. And I think you, you have really helpful resources that you include in many of your writings about creating structure of time management, creating times for, for review, maybe that's daily and weekly. Can you just share just a little bit? Cause I know that there's somebody listening who they've tried to figure this out and they're just looking for maybe a tool to help them do that. Could you just offer them your tool of kind of how you structure time and, and review? Yeah, absolutely. So l- let me just say this, that the first thing I did after I had that conversation with my, my wife in the den was I thought, I, I need some help because I, I can't figure this out on my own. So I hired an executive coach and that coach happened to be Daniel Harkavy with whom I wrote Living Forward. So the first thing Daniel did with me, and this is the advice Chandler that I would give to people who are struggling with this. He said to me, he said, what I observe about your life is that you have no constraints. There's no boundaries. So he said, tell me if this is right or wrong. But he said, my guess is in the middle of the afternoon, when it dawns on you that you're not going to get through your your to-do list for the day, that you just think to yourself, no problem. You know, I'll go home, have a a quick bite with the family, and then I'll crack open my laptop and keep working. Mm -hmm. Or you think to yourself, when you get to the end of the week, I didn't finish everything I wanted to do. No problem. I'll just do it on Saturday morning or I'll go to the office on Sunday afternoon or something after church and, you know, I'll just catch up. And, and he said, my guess is you probably even drag work into your vacation. And I said, well, buddy, you've done it. <laughs> That's me for sure. And he said, would you be willing to commit to a set of constraints that are going to initially feel like they box you in, but are going to actually lead, lead to freedom? Mm. And I said, yes. He said, okay, so when, would you, when are you willing to quit work in the evening 
and just like put it away and not pick it up till the next morning. So I thought for a minute, I said, I, I think I'm willing to do 6 p.m. He said, okay, 6 p.m. You know, he wasn't trying to press me. He was just trying to get me to define something. And he said, what about the weekends? And I said, I'm willing to not work on the weekends. And he said, what about vacations? I said, same thing. He said, well, okay. He said, well, since you've made those commitments, he said, I'm sure you won't mind if I periodically call Gail <laughs> and check in with her as to how you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that like took it to the next level of being real, right? I was like, oh, you know, maybe I could fool my coach, but you know, I, I can't fool my wife and she's going to tell the truth. So for months, you know, he would give her a call every, you know, 30 to 60 days and just say, so how's he doing? And so, you know, if, if, if he was talking to me, it'd be really easy for me to spin it or, you know, put my, you know, best foot forward. But because he was talking to my wife, he was getting the exact truth. But here's what, here's why that worked. I want you to think about the last time you took a vacation and let's say it's Friday, you're flying out the next, you know, Saturday morning. How productive are you on that Friday before you're going on a one week vacation? No, you kill it. <laughs> it's insane, right? Well, when you have constraints, that's exactly what happens. You are forced to prioritize. Mm -hmm. So you can't afford to goof off. You can't afford to, you know, scroll endlessly through social media. You can't get involved in, in chit chat that's going nowhere. You got to stay focused because in those days, I knew that 6 p.m. was was coming and that was it. I was closing up my laptop and I was done. So um, for the last several years, I think maybe six or seven years, I've taken 162 days off a year. So that includes every weekend, hmm. that includes every holiday, and that includes 11 weeks of vacation. Hmm. So that sounds crazy. But our business for the last three years in a row has been in the Inc. 5,000 fastest growing companies in America. And I think it's in large part because of that, we're very rigorous in our company, about a 40 hour work week for our employees, because we want them to get the double win. We want them to have, you know, their evenings free. We don't let people email or text in the evenings or on the weekends or vacations. But check this out. When the pandemic began, we've got a lot of young parents, no childcare, mm -hmm. kids underfoot, all the stress from the macro environment. Mm -hmm. So we said as an experiment for our entire team, we're going to go to it. This was like the, the, end of March, we said, we're going to go to a 30 hour work week. So we're going to go from eight hours a day to six hours a day. Nobody's going to get a pay cut, you know, same thing. We got to get as much done, but we're going to do it mm -hmm. six hours. And then we're going to check in two weeks and see how it went. We did. Went great. Mm -hmm. Whole team said, this is amazing. Our productivity is still up. So we said, okay, let's try it for another couple of months. We went through the summer. And then in our strategic planning meeting in September, the executives said, this is amazing. We're on a phenomenal trajectory. And in fact, we ended up finishing 2020 101% ahead of the previous year wow. in terms of profitability, 50% over our budget. And we said, we're going to make this permanent. So now today at Michael Hyde and company, we still are working 30 hours a week and we're achieving more than we ever have. And I think it's directly related to the power of constraint to create freedom and focus and productivity. So are you guys taking applications or? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So it's awesome. You know, like, like now when we put out, you know, open position and we're taking applications, we'll typically get two to 400 literally applications for every opening that we have. And it's in large part due to these kind of benefits, a 30 hour work week. We, we do a paid 30 day sabbatical every three years for every employee. That's like one of our most mm -hmm. popular things. We pay hundred percent of healthcare and all that because we said, we said, if we're going to, we're going to attract the best talent that we can get, 
And being able to scale your organization is dependent upon that. Mm. There's nothing more important to scaling than having great talent. But we're going to have to pay above market. We're going to have to have extraordinary benefits. We're going to have to have people beating the door down to come to work for us if we're going to get the best team. And, and I know we got to hit the quick hitter questions, but I, I just think, uh, Michael, as I've read your writings, um, it, all of this, to me, the thread seems to be vision, right? Because if you don't have, if, if your family, if your own personal health is not a part of your vision of success, none of this stuff makes any sense. And if you're a leader, uh, if you're an executive, if you're a supervisor, if you are over a company or a department and, and the health, uh, and morale of your team is not a part of your vision for success, then none of the stuff you guys have done with your company makes sense. So, uh, man, thank you so much for, for sharing that. You're welcome. Yeah. For the listeners, we'll try to get that little clip of uh, the productivity increasing for 30 hour work week. So you can uh, send it to your boss and we'll see how that goes. <laughs> Just kidding. Well, hey, let's let's move to the quick hitter questions here. These are going to be short one minute answers. And the first one is this. What is your ideal daily routine? So what time do you wake up, get into the office, all that good stuff? Yeah. So I wake up at 445. And my office is behind my house. So we have an office building that's about two blocks from me, but most of my work I do in the house. So for me, it's really simple. I, I begin by reading the Bible. I've read through the Bible every year for years. And so I read a, you know, a selection of scripture using the one hour, one year Bible. Then I pray, then I journal, and then I meditate for about 20 minutes. And then I go, um, go to my gym in my house and work out for an hour. So that's, that's how I start every day. That's awesome. Right. And so from there, and you, and you start your kind of six hour work day. And so what, what time are you uh, typically done? Three, uh, 3 p.m. So I work from nine to three. Wow. That's, <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Uh, what's your favorite personality test? Uh, Enneagram. Mm, why Enneagram? Um, I, you know, we use a lot of other tests in our work. We use strength finders. We've used Myers. Briggs, we've used DISC, we've used all those. The thing I like about the Enneagram is that I think not for qualifying people or placing people, but for development, I think it's really huge, especially spiritual development. But mm -hmm. I th because it shows what it looks like, what your personality looks like when it's healthy and what it looks like when it's unhealthy, it kind of gives you a path to help people mature and become mm -hmm. more healthy leaders. Hmm. What's an unusual habit that helps you in your leadership? A six hour work week. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, that's six hour work day. Sorry. Yeah. Not work week. Yeah. Work day. Yeah. yeah, that's definitely one. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer in using affirmations, hmm. not in, not of kind of in a woo woo kind of way, you know, cause I, I think sometimes they get a bad rap, but I have a series of about 50 affirmations about, sort of a vision of my future self. I actually took my life plan and took the vision parts of that, reduced it down to a series of statements. And when I'm meditating, I'm literally listening to those on a loop, just reminding me of who I want to become. And, and you know, I think people get shaped either by memories of the past or by a vision of the future. Mm. And I want my identity to be shaped by a vision of the future, not just memories of the past. Mm. So is that... That's fascinating. So I've heard of other people doing this before. Is that something that you recorded yourself um, or how, how do you do that? Yeah. And I know one of your questions on this is about apps. And so I'll just tell you the app that I use. That's fantastic. It's called think up, mm -hmm. think up. And it allows you to 
like, like I've got all my affirmations in an Evernote uh, note. And so you just copy and paste them one affirmation at a time and to think up super simple to do. And then it allows you, you just push the record button and you record that in your own voice. So when I'm hearing these affirmations, you know, I'm hearing them in my own voice. It's me speaking them. Hmm. Kind of cool. That is really cool. I have a buddy who did that and his brother recorded it. So it's his brother speaking those affirmations over his life. I just thought that was pretty neat. So I love the way you do it as well. So what has been the best book that you've read in the past six months? Well, I, I, I think it would have to be, um, you are the placebo by, um, Dr. Joe Dispenza. Hmm. And I, I, I don't agree with everything in the book, but the premise is fascinating because he's, he's a doctor and he talks about the placebo effect and how, when people think something is medicine, how it actually can cure them and even give the same side effects as that medicine would. <laughs> and, and so he, he tells tons of stories, tons of case histories. Like there was a study that was done in Japan where these Japanese children they had something rubbed on their arms and they told them that it was poison ivy, but it wasn't. It was just an inert object. And then they rubbed on the other hands and they said, this is not poison ivy, but it actually was. Well, what they thought was more determinative of whether they got the rash than what was put on them. Mm. And so his whole premise in the book is, uh, and, I'm, and I read this book because I'm writing a book on thinking right now, a new book on thinking with Megan, is just how powerful our thinking is. You know, the Bible says, as a man thinks, so is he. And our thinking really does shape the outcomes that we get in life. It starts with our thinking. You know, sometimes we try to, you know, re-engineer the process or we try to work harder. But a lot of times the biggest breakthroughs come when we, when we think differently about them. Mm. We got a lot of young leaders listening. What one sentence advice would you give someone going into a leadership position for the first time? So if you could kind of go back in time to Michael Hyatt, just getting started when you didn't know what you were doing, which I still don't believe. Uh, what one sentence advice would you give somebody starting out for the first time? Yeah, I would say you're not as smart as you think you are, but you have more potential than you can imagine. Mm. 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 That's great, man. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing about your leadership journey and taking us back to the beginning and, and walking us through that entire journey. And thank you for listening. We hope this has been helpful to you and your leadership. And if it has, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review so other young leaders like yourself can find the podcast. And we'll see you next week.